The same day Philadelphia reinstated its indoor mask mandates, airports and planes went maskless for the first time in two years. A federal judge struck down a request to extend the federal masking rule, calling it unlawful. The Department of Justice issued a statement saying it will appeal the judge's ruling if the CDC finds the mandate is still necessary to protect public health. All this comes as more than 30 states are reporting a rise in COVID cases. But some public health officials warn the official case numbers don't tell the whole story. The CDC says 11 percent of surveyed Americans reported using an at-home COVID test during the Omicron surge. But many who test positive at home never report the results. Since Omicron, some states have closed massive testing sites and cut down on reporting daily infections, hospitalizations and deaths. But we have a new subvariant in town, BA2. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention say it's now the dominant COVID strain in the U.S. So if we have another wave, will we be prepared? And how should we navigate a new world of maskless transportation? We're discussing the latest on the BA2 subvariant of Omicron and the public health response to the recent rise in cases. Joining us is Dan Diamond, a health policy reporter at The Washington Post. Dan, good to have you back. Jen, it's great to be back. Also with us, Dr. Celine Gounder. She's a senior fellow and editor-at-large for public health for Kaiser Health News at the Kaiser Family Foundation. Dr. Gounder, welcome back to you, too. Great to be here. And Dr. Abrar Karan, an infectious disease physician at Stanford University. Dr. Karan, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So, Dan, take us through the timeline here. The federal mandate requiring masks on airplanes and public transportation had been in place for two years. It was set to expire on Monday. Then the CDC extended it until May 3rd. And then a federal judge shut down that extension. Why is this judge calling the mandate unlawful? Well, I I think that's a good timeline, Jen, with one tweak. The federal mandate didn't take effect until Biden, President Biden, took over in January 2021. But airlines had voluntarily moved ahead with these requirements back in 2020. The federal judge in Florida uh, on, on Monday, her determination was that CDC didn't have the authority because of how she chose to define sanitation. She she consulted dictionaries and said that the CDC had overstepped what she thought sanitation should be. I should say that I spent a lot of yesterday talking to public health and legal experts who found the ruling uh, flawed and, and thought that there was real reason for challenging it. But the reason the White House has been so hesitant on what to do next is because of the political and legal considerations that they're worried that an appeal could unlock the possibility that this goes to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court, which has already dealt several blows to President Biden's pandemic strategy, that it could further limit the CDC's powers rather than uphold what public health officials think is the right policy. Now, the Justice Department has said they'll appeal this court decision if the CDC asks for it. So what's been the response from the CDC so far? Well, as as of uh, Wednesday morning, the CDC has been relatively quiet here. The Biden administration had spent much of, of Tuesday thinking about the political and legal considerations. They were very much caught off guard by the judge's ruling. Perhaps they should have been ready for it, given how the courts have repeatedly stepped in. But but I suppose that's a separate question for a separate day on 1A. But, but regardless, the White House has interest in fighting this because they are worried about the statutory authority of the CDC being undermined, not just for this crisis, but for the next one. What happens if there's an upswing of COVID or a new virus that requires public health officials to impose protections like masks, and this ruling scares them off? 
But let's say the Biden administration appeals, this goes to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court actually finds further that the CDC shouldn't have the authority here. The Biden administration is worried about that. And then there's this issue that the CDC in two weeks likely would have said, well, you should lift the mask mandate anyway. So the Biden administration isn't sure how much energy to devote to fighting this. I did speak to a White House official on on Tuesday night who expected that CDC will ultimately decide they need to fight this in court in order to protect their powers. But we will see. Hmm. Dr. Gounder, what was your reaction to this news when you heard it? Uh, Frustration. Uh, frustration that, yet again, public health powers, uh, however limited they have been uh, throughout the pandemic, are yet again being uh, rolled back. And frustration that we're not learning the lessons of this pandemic to prepare for what may happen in the future. Uh, This is a rapidly mutating virus. We will no doubt see other variants. Uh, we need to be prepared if we have an increase in cases come next fall and winter. And we need to be able to have these kinds of tools at our disposal, not just for COVID, but for future pandemics. Dr. Karan, what about you? Yeah, I found this particularly uh, frustrating and concerning as well. Uh, there's a few reasons. So one is that we know, as mentioned earlier on the show, we're underestimating cases. Um, a lot of testing is happening at home, if at all. Wastewater data is telling us that we're underdetecting. And I think we, in my mind, were at a point with BA2, um, whereby it was unclear to me where this was headed. Um, and we may be at a point where we're sort of teetering right now, exactly the wrong point to be pulling back on one of the last uh, mitigation measures that were still in place, which was for public transit um, and planes and places where people are crowded together, where ventilation is variable. When the plane is on, it's great. When it's off or taxing, it's not. Um, buses, trains, other places where people are dependent, they have to go there for work. Um, And then they're going off to other parts of cities, other states where they could be seeding potential outbreaks. And these are very hard to trace when it's coming from travel. So I think this uh, this is problematic. Dan, you went to Reagan National Airport in Arlington, Virginia, the day the mask mandate was lifted. What did you hear from people there? Well, Jen, I'd, I'd say first, these are people flying into the D.C. area, which skews strongly Democratic. If I'd gone to an Alabama airport, I, I'm sure I would have gotten a different mix. And there were some folks who were definitely thrilled, though. Uh, I spoke to people who said they were sick of masks. They were caressing their, their maskless faces in the baggage claim, saying how great it felt. They were convinced that masks didn't work, even though there's considerable evidence that good, high-quality masking can help. There were some other folks who were angry, who said that the masks have kept them protected throughout the pandemic, that they're planning to keep uh, wearing them on public transport and beyond. But honestly, Jen, I I think most were just confused. Uh, Finding out midair, especially if you're immunocompromised or you're vulnerable to COVID in some way, that the rule has changed, that's not how a public health policy should be communicated. And there were many people I spoke to who just said, we we didn't know what to think. And in the absence of better information, we're just going to keep the masks on until we can learn more for ourselves. Well, what's been the response from airlines and flight crews? Is there any indication they'll push back on this change? The airlines very quickly uh, were were rolling back the policies. I thought it was interesting that JetBlue, which had been that first airline two years ago to voluntarily impose restrictions, there were many folks at at Reagan National Airport in D.C. who said they were on JetBlue flights, and it was the JetBlue pilots and staff encouraging them to take off the masks if they wanted. So here you have the airline that was first leading the charge and and now leading the charge against uh, wearing masks. I I do think, um, Jen, it is important, Dr. Cron mentioned, it's not just the airlines, of course. It's ride-sharing companies. It's buses. So while public health experts are really concerned about the risk of, of COVID spread everywhere, 
the airlines at least have better ventilation and filtration than some of these other places where maybe you're standing room only commuting to work. You're immunocompromised and you have to get to this job. So the focus for me uh, the, the past day or so has been not just the airlines, but these other places where people tend to be. And so far, we've seen those, those companies as well fall in line with rolling back policies. We got this message from Natalie in Asheville, North Carolina, who says, as mask mandates have expired, I have found that only a very small number of people mask indoors. Is the advice that this is no longer necessary or that it is no longer required? Dr. Gounder, for those who still want to wear a mask on public transportation, how effective is it at preventing spread and infection, even if others are unmasked around you? So what we have learned over the course of the pandemic is one-way masking works if you are using high-quality masks. And there is sort of a a hierarchy in terms of the quality of masks. With N95 masks, what we wear in the hospital are uh, the highest grade. Uh, By definition, if they are worn correctly, will prevent uh, or filter out 95% of those small particles that include viruses. Uh, A KN95, which is also quite good as probably on the order of about 70% filtration. And then you have surgical masks below that and cloth masks below that. But we do know if you're wearing one of those highest tier N95 or KN95 masks, they are highly effective even if people around you are not wearing a mask. And to answer the caller's question, this is really about what is required, uh, not what is advised or recommended. And many public health officials, including myself, would still recommend particularly while we're, we're waiting to see how the BA2 uh, subvariant of Omicron plays out across the country, while we're waiting for more information about that, we would really recommend that in indoor public spaces, people continue wearing a mask. Dr. Karan, briefly, how would you describe the overall public health response to this phase of the pandemic? I think it's been very confusing. And I think this uh, this ruling actually makes it even more confusing for the public, especially. You know, when I, when I heard about this ruling, um, it was clear that this was more than just public health. There seemed to be maybe a political slant to this. Um, There seemed to be a legal slant to it. But from a public health standpoint, it was clear that this this time right now, um, where I'm actually starting to get a lot more phone calls from family and friends, where there was a a brief period where I wasn't hearing from anybody um, about people getting infected. So sort of just, just anecdotally reporting, seeing the wastewater, this reminds me a little bit of January when um, when we had Omicron really start up. And remember, we had so much spread that actually it was an extremely busy time in the hospital, um, working on the immunocompromised service on the solid organ transplant infectious disease service. We were seeing a lot of patients coming in. So definitely, um, you know, I'm going to keep wearing high filtration masks. Dan, we saw how transmissible the Omicron variant was back in January. At one point, there was a peak of more than 800,000 new reported cases a day. That's according to the CDC's weekly average. How does the rising caseload for BA2 compare to those record levels we saw with Omicron? Well, Jen, it's much, much smaller, uh, at least from the official data. There is a very good chance that the actual numbers are much higher, given the failure to report at-home testing or folks who may be getting infected and just don't realize that they might think it's spring allergies or something else. So while cases are officially up, I was looking at the Washington Post tracker earlier today, they're up about 30% around the country nationwide uh, in the past week. That That is very different than the dramatic uh, 100% or 200% rise when you look at the Omicron spike that just went straight up for a series of weeks. And what's the latest rate of hospitalizations and deaths? Hospitalizations and deaths are are trending in the right direction. Deaths have gone down. Uh, They are below 500 
per day on, on average, which is not great, but certainly much better than the thousands of deaths that we were seeing earlier in the pandemic. And hospitalizations are at around 15,000, which is uh, the lowest number in, in many months. And that has trended slowly down as well. There is a chance, because we've seen this before with previous variants and, and the cycle of infection, that in the days and weeks to come, people who are having complications from the infections they're experiencing now will be admitted to hospital and will need care later on. But there is a theory, Jen, and the doctors on the program can speak to this too, that the protections from vaccinations or previous infections are inhibiting the worst consequences of BA2 for many Americans. Dr. Gounder, what do we know about the transmissibility of BA2 and, and how the vaccines may be helping to prevent severe illness and spread? We know uh, that BA2 is about 30 to 50% more infectious, more transmissible than the original Omicron. So what we are seeing in big picture is that this is a virus that is mutating to spread more efficiently from person to person. And then in the case of Omicron, to at least to some degree evade our immune responses, whether that's an immune response to vaccination or immune response to prior infection. Uh, in terms of how well are the vaccines still protecting us, though, the vaccines are still very protective against severe disease, hospitalization, and death, uh, whether that's from Omicron or BA2 or an earlier variant. And ultimately, we vaccinate people to prevent those severe consequences of disease, uh, not to prevent all cases. Lisa emailed us this. I'm wondering why we are not modifying our booster shots so that they provide better coverage for new dominant variants. I recall being told that mRNA vaccines can easily be modified as necessary, and yet it is being recommended that we get a second booster of just more of the same we have already received. Dr. Gounder, what's the latest on boosters? So uh, Moderna just yesterday um, released new data through a press release on uh, an updated version of its vaccine that would include um, protection against the beta variant. So this is something that was in the works for a while. And the results were not that impressive in terms of the increase in neutralizing antibodies that you get from getting a boost of that updated vaccine versus the original version of the vaccine. Uh, and so I think it, there are costs to switching um, your vaccine formulation. And if you're not seeing a significant improvement in the immune response, it's an unclear that it really makes sense to take production lines um, offline and switch them over. Uh, we also don't entirely know what this would mean in terms of, um, for example, if we updated the vaccine for Omicron, uh, is that really the, the right target? Um, this has been a really difficult virus uh, to pin down, to know how it's going to mutate in the future. Um, and that may not be the appropriate shift to be making right now. When we talk about tracking the spread of this virus, Dr. Karan, at the beginning of the pandemic, the death rate and the hospitalization rate were two big parts of how we gauged the risk of infection. But now that those rates are pretty low, how do we best measure the risk of spread and, and the risk of, of infection? Yeah, these are these are key questions. I mean, you know, the, the issue here to me is that we need to keep tracking cases as well. There's there's a lot of reasons to do that. One of them is to to keep tabs on how the virus is mutating, if there are new variants forming what percent of uh, new cases represent new variants, um, which could represent a new outbreak starting. 
And, you know, CDC has announced recently at their new forecasting center, really looking at ways to get better at predicting spread. Um, you know, wastewater is something that, that I mentioned and has been used to sort of tell you it really precedes cases and did so um, a little bit closer uh, before people were doing a lot of at-home testing. Now with a lot of at-home testing or no testing at all, um, it's becoming tougher. But I, I, I have noted at least that that wastewater sampling is something that's useful to, to tell us before an outbreak or a surge may be starting. Um, but, you know, I think we need to be clear because some public health experts keep saying that cases don't matter. And I really want to push back on that. They absolutely matter. Overwhelming surges matter because a, a, a small percentage of an enormous number is still a lot of people. Um, so ca- ca- keeping track of cases must be a priority. Dr. Gounder, I, I would love for you to just help us understand why it's important to be aware of the risks of having this virus continue to circulate in the population, um, even if people are asymptomatic. Why, why does that matter? Um, I think where uh, there's been confusion is you use different metrics to assess different things. Um, so if you're trying to assess what is the effectiveness of your vaccination, that is a place where looking at hospitalizations and deaths are the appropriate appropriate metric. If you're trying to figure out, hey, what is my risk as the individual going out into public of uh, being exposed and infected with COVID, say, riding the subway in New York City, there you want to be looking at community transmission rates. And so I think part of the issue here is that people are um, trying to use one metric, one measure to stand in for everything. And I think there is some confusion around that. And The CDC did a couple months ago now move to reporting um, a composite of cases, hospitalizations, hospital capacity. So if you look at those maps that show the green, yellow, red, what those maps really tell you is if I get COVID, is the hospital in my area going to be able to provide normal standards of care or crisis standards of care? And that's a very useful piece of information, say, if I am... um, an administrator in a hospital trying to prepare for what is to come, uh, for uh, staffing, for supplies. That's very different from me, again, as the individual trying to navigate my own life and should I be wearing a mask. So what what does that mean for how we can best understand if we're actually in a surge or does it just depend on what measures are being applied? So whether we're in a surge is really a question of do you have an increase in cases? And we have relied up to this point in the pandemic, I would say overly relied on trying to count cases. That's not really how we assess other diseases. We don't try to count every case. What we do is representative, population representative, random sampling uh, to get a sense uh, of a best estimate as to how often the disease is occurring in the population. We do things like syndromic surveillance where you're really counting how many people come to the hospital with, say, cough and fever. And then you estimate based on that, well, this proportion might be the flu, this might be pneumonia, this proportion might be COVID. And it gives you sort of a gestalt. And then finally, as, as Dr. Karan was mentioning, wastewater surveillance. This is, a, this is going to be a really powerful tool. It's not entirely optimized yet. Uh, we're not standardized in how we process sewage, how we measure virus in the sewage across the country. Um, So it's still a very rough indicator, but it is one that I think over time will give us better and better estimates of how much 
virus is circulating in the community. Dan, some airlines have noted that this court order we've been discussing, it does not exempt passengers from countries' uh, travel requirements outside the U.S. What does this change in rules mean for those traveling abroad in and out of the U.S.? Well, Jen, I I think it is right that you have to figure out what the rules are for the country where you're going. But there are still international rules uh, on masking in some cases. And then I do think that there is good evidence of the power, as Dr. Gounder was saying earlier, of one-way masking on airplanes. That if you're wearing a well-fitting, high-quality mask, an N95 mask, for instance, that that can protect significantly even on a long flight across uh, across the world. So that that remains a very powerful protection, even as some folks may be removing their own masks. Dan, very briefly, when we look at the court challenge uh, that may be coming for uh, the, the transportation mask mandates, how quickly could we see a change potentially? Or is this something, I know you said the Biden administration is still figuring out whether they're going to challenge this, but what's the timeline here for people who are thinking about traveling this summer? I I think there's not going to be a legal challenge that changes this in the near future, Jen. The plan to lift the mask mandate potentially in in two weeks would have proceeded uh, before any any court challenge works its way through. So I, I think we are going to be in a world where that mask mandate is going to be in the past. It's more about fighting for the policy if the CDC wants to use it again in the future. We're discussing the latest on COVID-19 and the next steps in the pandemic. We'll be back with more in just a moment. Remember to join future conversations, download our 1A Fox Pop app and leave us a voicemail. Now let's get back to the COVID subvariant BA2 and the public health response to rising case numbers. Dr. Gounder, last month, the Biden administration announced a new test-to-treat program. It would give antiviral pills like Pfizer's Paxlovid and Merck's Legevrio to people who test positive for the virus. It was meant to treat people who are at high risk of severe symptoms and illness. The federal government covered the cost of the pills, but not the cost of the appointment to get a prescription. How effective has that program been? Well, very soon after the test-to-treat program was announced and started to be rolled out, the HRSA, um, which is uh, part of the part of HHS, um, HRSA ran out of funding for the uninsured program that covered the cost of uninsured people accessing testing, treatment, and vaccination. So the cost, uh, the charge that a healthcare provider or facility might charge for you to access that. And so you may have noticed recently that um, places like CVS, Walgreens, et cetera, are now charging for you to access those services. And this really uh, cut the knees, uh, cut the cut the ability of the test to treat program to have the impact it was intended to have. Because now, if you are an uninsured per, uh, person and one in 10 Americans do not have health insurance, you will not be able to access um, that test testing and treatment. Um, One in four Americans also do not have primary care providers, and this was really also meant to uh, help improve access for that population. And unfortunately, those who are at highest risk of being exposed, infected, coming down sick with COVID are precisely those people who don't have insurance, don't have primary care providers, don't have routine, regular medical care. We also got this tweet from Dwayne who says, what's known about reinfection surrounding Omicron for those of us who have had it or subvariants like my son? Dr. Gounder, what do we know? 
Yeah, whether it's um, a booster dose of vaccine or a recent infection, that really, that boost in immunity that you get from that really only lasts about three to four months or so. And so after about three to four months after that prior infection, that prior booster dose, your risk of getting reinfected goes back up. Now, you're still well protected against severe disease, hospitalization, and death. But as Dr. Karan pointed out, you know, a mild form of the disease can still um, put you in bed. Um, you, you know, you're not going to have those dramatic drops in your oxygen levels, which is how we define severe disease, but can be very inconvenient in terms of being able to go to work or go to school. Dan, this current stage of the pandemic is all happening while the White House runs out of COVID relief money. White House Coronavirus Response Coordinator Ashish Jha told Fox News Sunday about the urgency of this issue and how quickly Congress needs to pick it up again once they're back in session. My hope is as soon as possible, Congress comes back next week. Let me be very clear on why we need the money. We're going to have a new generation of vaccines. My hope is in the fall. There are a lot of really promising treatments coming down the pike. None of those things are going to be available for the American people if Congress does not step up and fund these efforts. So uh, Congress comes back next week. Uh, My hope is that they pick this issue up right away and make sure that we get funding to the American people so that we can make sure the treatments, vaccines, uh, tests all continue to be available for Americans. Dan, where does Congress stand on a deal for additional funding? <laughs> they, they stand uh, twiddling their thumbs, unfortunately, Jen. I mean, the message that, that Dr. Jha uh, issued on, on TV, that's the message that White House officials have been making publicly. President Biden has pled for this money for months, and yet Congress has not been able to reach a deal. Some of that is because the White House was not really an aggressive on what they needed. My colleagues at The Washington Post and I, we were talking to sources in January who said that the White House needed as much as $80 billion to buy vaccines, tests, and supplies. But when the White House actually went to Congress and asked for money, it was a fraction of that. It was about $22 billion. Even these smaller packages in recent weeks have fallen apart. Part of that is because Senate Republicans don't want to set aside new money. They say that trillions of dollars have already been spent on the pandemic. They want to know where those dollars have gone. And then some Democrats have pushed back because they don't like how the money is currently being set aside, or they've argued that the packages put together don't go far enough. They they dropped global funding from a deal recently as well. I think at this point, the hope would be COVID funding could be attached to a Ukraine relief bill. Ukraine has, has more political urgency this moment on Capitol Hill. So being able to use that as a vehicle to get more COVID funding out. Well, I want to learn more about the the global COVID aid piece of this in just a moment. But Dr. Karan, in the absence of action from Congress, what would you hope to see states invest in to stay prepared for future surges? Well, I think, uh, you know, the prevention aspect is, is, is critically important. And one thing that I've noted is that, as Dr. Gounder is mentioning, we need to lower the, the barrier of access to preventative measures and treatment measures for people within these states, right? So making it easier to access Paxlovid, easier to access uh, high quality N95s. Um, again, rapid testing, which, um, uh, you know, funding rapid testing, making sure people don't have to pay out of pocket. Anything we can do to lower the barrier to, to, to detect cases, to prevent spread uh, would be something I'd want to see states really pushing forward because we need that infrastructure in place for when we have another surge, um, not if. And Dr. Gounder, as Dan said, uh, the latest COVID aid package, it, it cut global aid. How important is that for this phase of the pandemic? 
Well, we've learned over uh, the past two years that um, transmission anywhere around the world uh, can lead to the emergence of new variants, and those new variants can threaten our recovery. Uh, you know, just backing up a little bit in terms of what's happened with the congressional funding, um, outside experts estimated the need at 100 billion with a B dollars. The uh, internal, and Dan can comment on this as well, the internal original estimates at the White House were on the order of 80 billion. That got whittled down to 20 something billion, then 15 something billion, then 5 billion for global uh, COVID relief was cut, and now we're down to 10 billion, and even that's not guaranteed. You know, that's a tenth of what outside experts have estimated the need to be. With respect to that cut to the global um, COVID response, you know, one of the big issues that we're having now is it's not just about vaccine supply, it's also about vaccine distribution combating disinformation, um, which has been a challenge here at home. And it's really um, surprising to me, frankly, that we didn't think about this more, understanding that we needed to do these things here, that those very same efforts would need to be made uh, around the world in terms of making sure there was demand uh, and a way to provide vaccines, not just the supply. Dan, in, in hearing Dr. Gounder describe this this shrinking um, pot of proposed funding. Is it your sense that there's any awareness that without more proactive movement, more proactive planning to respond to the pandemic, we are always going to be in in a reactionary phase that makes it harder for us to truly move beyond the pandemic? Jen, I think that's a good way to put it. I sat down with former CDC director Tom Frieden yesterday, and he was lamenting the panic and neglect cycle that happens so often when fighting new pandemics. Initially, there's panic. There's a lot of political will to fund a response, to engage in all manner of protections, uh, shutdowns, even, even masking, to work together globally on solutions. And Dr. Frieden said we're heading full steam into the neglect cycle. So you see that here in America. You also see some of the challenges in getting together a global response. President Biden had committed to hold a global vaccination summit by March. That didn't happen. It's sled uh, now now to May, about two months after the original plan. As Dr. Gounder laid out, the goal of combating uh, global challenges, part of the Biden administration plan was to fund something called Global Vax. They were going to help dozens of developing countries vaccinate their populations. That, that money is not there because Congress can't agree on a deal. So this goal uh, that was unveiled with so much fanfare to help vaccinate the world looks likely to come to an abrupt end in a few months. I just want to note here that the vaccine is still not available for kids under five years old. There's also an estimated 7 million immunocompromised Americans who are at much higher risk of getting severely ill from COVID-19. Dr. Gounder, as our government's response to the pandemic shifts more toward individual responsibility and away from collective action, how do you recommend people stay safe and healthy, particularly if they're in a high-risk category? Well, we really have put the onus on the most vulnerable Uh, to take care of themselves. And so, um, you know, I think it's a very difficult position to be in. Uh, Children under five, for example, still cannot get vaccinated. Uh, The tools that we know work um, continue to be masking, um, indoor ventilation and air filtration. So um, that could mean opening windows, uh, purchasing one of those HEPA air filtration units. Uh, I would 
keep your socializing outdoors, not indoors. We know outdoors is essentially infinite ventilation, really dramatically reduces your risk. If you're somebody who's eligible to be vaccinated and boosted, get vaccinated and boosted. But, you know, I think especially as we turn, um, hand the reins over to individuals to take care of themselves, we actually need to hand the reins over. And so that means giving them the tools, the information, um, having other measures in place, for example, paid sick and family medical leave so that if you are infected, um, you're sick, you can stay home, you're not infecting other people, but you're also not missing wages. If your child is sick, you can stay home, take care of your child and not have to worry about uh, missing out on wages or extra cost of childcare. These are things that societally we need to do in order to empower individuals to take care of themselves. We got this email from Emily who says it feels like no one is talking about parents and caregivers of kids under two years old who can't be vaccinated or mask. As a mother of a 10-month-old, I feel angry, overwhelmed, and forgotten. Also, any update on vaccines? Dr. Karan, what can you tell us about the latest on a vaccine for the youngest Americans? Yeah, so you know we're still waiting on on data to to really rule out roll out vaccines for this group. Um, you know, I want to address because this really overlaps with with the points Dr. Gunner made. That this individual responsibility, right? Even for mothers taking care of two year olds, this is just not enough to over uh, overcome the epidemic. So when when we take care of uh, uh, patients with airborne pathogens in the hospital, we don't just wear N95 masks. We put them in negative pressure rooms with amazing ventilation, where air changes per hour are much higher. What are the engineering controls that are in place for the public such that we are not constantly walking into places with poor ventilation and people getting infected? Individual responsibility is part of the the puzzle, but it's not everything. And I think that the responsibility really needs to be on the government and states to be investing in better ventilation, cleaning the air so that mothers don't have to be worrying about their children who can't get vaccinated right now. Dan, briefly, what are you watching for next? Well, I I think one question is this congressional funding package. Where will the money come from? Will they be able to agree on it quickly? And another issue, Jen, that, that we haven't talked about is another CDC policy. It's called Title 42. It relates to immigration. Uh, under the Trump administration, this policy was put into place to restrict migration at the border. That policy was set to expire soon. It has become a big political issue on Capitol Hill. We'll continue to watch that story. That's Dan Diamond, a health policy reporter at The Washington Post. Also with us, Dr. Abrar Karan, an infectious disease physician at Stanford University, and Dr. Celine Gounder, a senior fellow and editor-at-large for public health at Kaiser Health News from the Kaiser Family Foundation. Dr. Gounder, Dr. Karan, Dan, thank you so much for your time. Today's producer was Sophia Alvarez-Boyd. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening. We'll talk more soon. This is 1A.